0: How can you be part of a religious community that's straight up just a group of Sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold you. The church seems to be stuck that in they their
1: ways exist. when the rest of the
0: community is so obsessed with the They keep trying to get answers, I would but they never don't even be a know part the of questions we're asking. Not welcoming today. As the church as is the most t- vocal political hearing voice hearing. against immigration. Some churches still don't want claim to claim worship is the actual privilege. How can you your story be good if that isn't the majority of people? The church I seems to be stuck to in their way, so when the rest of the like, culture how is, is that actually it seems like news. so much of the church Explosive, is more concerned with being a good anti-critical American. Anticritical
1: thinking, therapy, a good homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, and disconnected from what is truly happening
0: in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today, our very, very special and, dare I say, distinguished guest is Dr. Mark Labberton. Dr. Laberton is the president of Fuller Theological Seminary. He has been ordained in the Presbyterian Church, and he served in pastoral roles for thirty years prior to coming to Fuller. Does that work in the Presbyterian Church? Where, like, are you still technically ordained, even though I
1: am? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh, yeah.
0: Still ordained, and most recently, he was a senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California, for sixteen years. I'm going to cut off my intro for one sec six or seven years ago i was at a coffee shop here in honolulu in our neighborhood in Kakako. and i met this woman who was an anthropology professor at hawaii pacific university here did i tell you that story and she tells me oh like we start talking and we're you know just talking about yeah. what we do and i tell her what i'm doing with imagine in the neighborhood talk about fuller and she says you know, I've, I've struggled with going to church. I struggle with anti-intellectualism, right? She's a PhD from Berkeley, really smart woman. And she says, but I went to this Presbyterian church around Berkeley and Mark Labberton was the pastor there. And she says, <laughs> man, that guy is amazing. And I said, oh, Mark? I know Mark. <laughs> I love so that. Even in coffee oh, shops fun. here in the Arts District in Honolulu, your name is still being talked about. There I'll we
1: have that. it, yep, there we have it.
0: And also Mark, along with other degrees, holds a PhD in theology from Cambridge University. And for, for perspective and context, Dr. Laberton is committed to strengthening the intersection of the academy, church, culture, And really brings to his presidency a deep desire to enact justice, love, and grace on both a global and a local level. He's written multiple books, including The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor, Seeing Others Through the Eyes of Jesus, and The Dangerous Act of Worship, Living God's Call to Justice. He's married to his wife, Janet Morrison Labberton, and has two sons who are like 32 and 26-ish right now. That's right. Yep. Okay, I did some math from a really old bio. I was like plus seven. At Fuller, we don't really do math, but I do have that right there. I can say so much more, but Dr. Laberton, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me in the interview and also the people listening today. Well, it's
1: a joy and an honor. Thanks, Kevin, for having me.
0: Yeah, let's, you know, there is this moment we find ourselves in, right, as clergy, as leaders, and there, there's this consistent refrain said different ways of people are searching for life after evangelicalism, right? People right. call themselves the new evangelicals or exvangelicals. And many folks are walking away from the church as so many people have known it for a while. And now while it's easy for someone to give a flippant response of, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're just leaving the faith and they're just leaving Jesus I think there are other ways of seeing this moment. And if we zoom out a bit, what do you see in that larger spiritual shift that seems to be happening for so many around us?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and one that I do spend a lot of time thinking about. I do think that in many ways, they're simply giving us a diagnosis of the state of the church. Mm. So I receive it as a diagnosis. Uh, that says, look, th- these are the issues, these are the crises, these are the disconnects. And uh, there's all kinds of things that are underneath why they would offer that particular diagnosis. But the fact that it is so common and the fact that it's so pervasive of, across generations, but especially true of younger adults and teenagers, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, it has to be taken seriously as a real diagnosis. So rather than pushing it away as though, well, that's their problem, I'd much rather receive it as a helpful critique of the state of the church and the state of evangelicalism and to ask ourselves really much more seminal questions about what is wrong with what we're doing and what is seminally wrong, not just technically wrong, but what is actually the case about the way that we've actually handled our faith and, and mishandled our faith, especially as it relates to the public square. So I think that uh, in many ways that the evangelical church Not only the evangelical church, but the evangelical church is an example of burying the gospel inside the church and encrusting it over over hundreds of years with a kind of wrapping of the ecclesiastical industrial complex, which comes in all kinds of forms, but fundamentally keeps the gospel still buried beneath structure, culture, limitation, boundary, etc., rather than the kind of electricity of life and ministry that Jesus himself obviously was, and is the source of still today. So I think I want to hear the critique, and then I want to respond to it. This is one of the reasons why at Fuller we've initiated something called Rethinking Church in the 21st Century, which is really an effort to say, let's listen internal to Fuller, let's listen to external national voices, let's listen to external international voices, and let's gather together as much insight as we can about the the nodes of the crisis what's behind those nodes, what's behind those diagnoses those nodes and those diagnoses to still deeper levels. And then what would the spirit of God want to say to the church today to renew and revive its life?
0: Mm. That's so good. One thing leadership within our church talk, talk about is transformational leadership. And the way we use that is referring to our own transformation, usually as individuals where it's like when something is happening, there is what we need to do, the courage we have to have, the things we need to say. But also, if you're bothered, if you're irritated by this, that says something within you that we need to overcome, transform, let go of, surrender, et cetera. Right, right. I think Even that answer alone represents such a hopeful thing for the future of the church in the U.S. as a leader who's in your position to not look at people migrating other places or leaving the, the, the church as we've known it as, well, let's just put that on them. But no, let's allow that critique, let's allow that movement to become a mirror to reflect on ourselves for the sake of that encrusting, those things that are getting in the way to be removed. You know, Meister, right. Eckhart, Meister Eckhart talks about, you know, nothing is added to the soul. The whole journey of spirituality is about subtraction. And so, to allow the voices and the critiques of people to hold the mirror up, to allow us to see with clarity what needs to be let go of, like that is, Mm -hmm. that's a big part of the thing that enables Mm -hmm. us to move forward. So, as a leader, I just, I so see that in you. One of the reasons I'm excited about having you on for people to see that, not just Mm -hmm. a pastor like me on the margins having my prophetic voice, but to see a leader who also is allowing those things to, to be heard and to flow through us to move forward is just so huge. So,
1: Well, I do think that it's a season of the church having to find its vulnerability again. Mm. And one of the reasons why I think this is such a c- critical theme is that we've taken, you know, literally centuries, millennia, to build up an aura of, of uh, the stability. I would call the the gospel reliable, but I wouldn't call the gospel stable in the mm-hmm. sense that it's uh, as, as though it is like a, a block of cement. It's not that. It's dynamic. It's alive. It's spirit-led. It's, it's about finding ourselves in weakness. And I think when the church principally competes out of strength rather than actually in identifying and allowing ourselves the personal uh, transformational exposure of our weakness, allows us to actually enter into communion with other people like and unlike us. And I think that's that's a piece of what has to be retained. The gospel actually gives us this, this plentiful space, right? The psalmist calls it a broad place. God has brought us into a broad place. And that broad place is a place of freedom and exposure, uh, of vulnerability. And in that, God can meet us, and we can meet each other in very, very different ways. I mean, this is why I've always loved the title of this podcast, The Church Does Need Therapy, mm-hmm. and it needs it in in so many different ways. And uh, there's an amazing book that I'm just now finishing that will come out in a few months <clears throat> by a, a uh, psychiatrist in Washington, D.C. named Kurt Thompson called The Soul of Desire. And it weds both Augustinian understandings of desire with, Uh, the neurobiological realities of our lives and how these two things uh, sync up. And so much of what he's describing really is this capacity to be able to find ourselves in lewdness. And I I just think it's a terrifically important theme rather than trying to say, how do we reassert our strength and regain our foothold to be the champions? No, what if the church actually became uh, deeply, truly, healthily broken then Mm. then we're in a place that begins to have the hope of the gospel in it for the reasons you said, which is that it's in that vulnerability Mm. that God can meet us.
0: Yeah. And despite the climax, the shape of our narrative being death and resurrection. Right. I do seem to hear clergy people and people praying more often. They love referring to God as almighty and very, it's very rare you hear prayers to the all-vulnerable god.
1: Right, right. We also right.
0: see on the cross that makes way for the kind of might that looks very different from the one that's self-asserting. It's the right. one that flows after the right broken in that vulnerability, so.
1: Right, right. Well, and that's where I think we we reach a really different setting in understanding the meaning of our faith, right? We've built a triumphalist faith in the face of, of overwhelming powers, that's understandable. So it's understandable that we want to, to find power for our lives. But on the other hand, uh, I would say that the purpose of worship is really to reorder power in our lives. Any exercise communally or individually in worship is about remembering who who is God, who's not God, who, are, who am I in relationship to the power I hold in relationship to others. The Philippians 2 call to imitate Jesus in the capacity to lay down power rather than preserve it. Now, these are are counterintuitive things in a culture that does everything possible to breed. It's all about our strength and all about our manifestation of of capacity rather than of weakness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I often have felt as a president in this long period of time of change, which predates the pandemic, but certainly has been intensified in the pandemic, to realize that I am only at best partially gifted to be the president of fuller i'm not comprehensively gifted to be able to do this job and there are daily reminders to me just how ill-suited i am to the role that i, I am same... in.
0: i don't even want to know how many little <laughs> reminders with the role you have i like, don't even tell me that will be too much they,
1: they're a bounty they are a bounty i can <laughs> assure you uh, so my point is that that's either a crisis that paralyzes me Hmm. Or it's a reality that I embrace, name, Hmm. publicly expose, uh, accept the implications that that creates limitations for other people around me unless I'm willing to try to let go of my control so that other people whose gifts are better than mine in so many different Hmm. areas can actually manifest their strengths rather than me somehow in that fictionalized way trying to pose as though I hold all these gifts, which I don't. That, that's mm. ludicrous um but that that is not the way that it's supposed to go right <laughs> It's supposed yeah. to be the all answering one the all sufficient one, and uh I'm neither of those things
0: mm. yeah that where it's it's anticipating some further questions about power right but even though to be where we begin right there, you know you think about there are so many. Over and over, the stories of Jesus are subverting, challenging, and up completely upending in, a, in almost in satirical ways, right our constant desire for power, you know the bringing of the yes. children paul yes. which is one of my favorite things he talks about you know when I'm weak when i'm strong, which is a lot of what I think we're talking right. about right now right and it makes exactly. me think of a story where we think about You know, you have an all-powerful God, but power in the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus looks very different than the self-asserting, grasping, control-oriented power. And years ago, there was an award show where, you know, it's red carpet. Everyone's like done up. It's all the stars. And... You know, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, who culturally, you know, they're like the beacons of power and prestige. And they're like cultural royalty, you know, in the United States of America. And they're on the red carpet and they're they're working it. They know what to do. They know the angles. They're a power couple, right? And Amy Schumer, who is a stand-up comedian, saw them... And you know, in her mind as a stand up, that they're already irreverent, satirical. It's like we're in the right. game, but we also know this is a game and this is silly, all this power, right? Right. 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 And so when she sees them over there, she tells her publicist, she's like, I'm going to go fall in front of them. And then the publicist is like, no, please, Amy. And she's like, no, I'm doing it. And there's pictures that you can find where she throws herself as if she tripped in front of all the cameras and Kim and Kanye and it's this whole thing and they look at her and probably their, their bodyguards probably start to you know, take them away. And I love that story as a modern day example of it's only when we let go of the need for power is where we discover how powerful we really are. Right. When you right. can see through that kind of self-asserting power, whatever it is that flows out of the ego's need for control, prestige or whatever. Right. When we surrender right. that, that mysterious, all powerful you know, spirit that comes out of the life of God all of a sudden emerges and is like, once you let go of the need for that kind of power, then you discover how powerful you really are to do all the things you can do within your own limitations as a actual person. That's right. You're
1: actually freer. Yeah. No, I agree with that very, very much. I think Andy Crouch wrote an extremely helpful book called the strong and the weak, which is a diagnosis. Yeah. Such a helpful book. I'd love to hear why you think it is, but my reason for saying it's so good is that he does a really good job critiquing power, which is obviously, in a way, the language of the day. Uh, many, many, many people are involved in both asserting power and then deconstructing power. But what he also does that I think is really helpful is that he moves on to say, yes, but there is really good power, mm. both because God is good and is all-powerful. So there is good power, and we are meant to express good power. But the good power is a power that's free from the unnecessary ego entanglements and the unnecessary biases that are part of, of the way that we've been cultivated and, and nurtured as a child and mm. as a as a young adult and, and as an older adult. All of those are patterns of formation that can make us have very distorted images. This is why the church is trying to figure out how to get power back Mm. and the and the the driving front edge of the evangelical crisis is among other things about how some people want to get it back in a mm. kind of quote nostalgic way which idolizes and idealizes a past which was never deserving of being idealized or idolized mm. and it's unachievable it's literally unachievable and what's greater than that crisis is a crisis that it was never God's intent that it should be that way anyway so mm. it's it's a very deep issue, and this rethinking church effort really has to take us back to places that we just don't want to go. It sounds like it's all negative, it's not negative it's ultimately incredibly life giving for the exercise of power that brings life and doesn't take it. What about you what What was it about Andy's book that really caught your attention?
0: yeah, well you first of all, for people listening, Dr Laberton is you know, a president, a scholar, all those things. And he is like one of the most pastoral people I've ever met in a sincere and genuine way. I still will have told people, you know, I'll be on a email years ago where I'm just on Google like checking my Gmail and all of a sudden it's like Google chat and it's Dr. Laberton. He's like, hey Kevin, how you doing? I'm like, don't you have a lot of stuff going on? Like, why are you even asking me? I'm pretty sure you have like this meeting and we have that budget thing. And but to still have that Sense of space and care to do that always amazes me. So you can see, even by the question he asked me, he, <laughs> he he's always he always knows he's always sensitive <laughs> to other people. Well, I just think one, it's a short book, so back to Andy Crouch's book, Strong and Weak for yeah. people. Yeah. One, it's a really short book, so I think it's one you can give to people. You know, well. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I think it the holding together for him of the options, you know, with those four quadrants. But ultimately, right. what he's showing us is embracing vulnerability is built into the ability to live with the kind of power that actually flows from the heart of God, as opposed to our own ego need for control or power or whatever it is. And so to me, just the holding the showing the different quadrants, but holding that tension together of yeah, you surrender the outcomes that's beyond your realm, but you still do the thing you embrace right. that it can fail. But right. you still try. I don't have to right. manipulate, coerce, or try to bend everybody to my will. I'm simply being faithful. And then after that, I don't have to, I am not God who has to control and move all of the pieces. So I think it both right. shows us a vision that liberates us from a toxic form of power. Right. That will drive us and others into the ground, but also then wakes us up to the kind of power that is present in the Genesis one story, the creation narrative. That's like, as right. a human being, you're here to make a world. You kind of can't have right. more of power and right. responsibility than that. So,
1: right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, his, yeah, yeah. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's very transformational, I think, and and enormously freeing, um, yeah. It complicates other people's lives because it, it ultimately means also that I'm not going to s- solve you. I'm not going to Absolutely. make, I'm not going to be everything for you that in my fictionalized idealized self, uh, I would somehow be in order to be able to bring uh, whatever it is that I should be bringing to a given setting. I'm yeah. only going to be able to be a contributor and uh, exactly. and that is still worth doing for all the reasons that you gave. Mm. Uh, it's that It's that lie that permeates a lot of decisions i think in our lives where we think if we can't be everything then we can't do anything and that's mm. just not true um mm. there's all kinds of partial efforts called ordinary life uh yeah. that is a partial effort and god receives it as a gift as an offering um yeah and, and
0: i think and it's it such a through. and as as a, as a person like i don't naturally in my default patterns i don't have an orientation towards power if anything uh-huh. I grew up with an uh, an aller in a you know an allergy to power and responsibility. Right. I was the opposite, right. so I've yeah. never really been a power yeah. person. It, it takes courage for me to embrace yes. the appropriate sense of power. That's right. a part of my journey.
1: Right. But right. I
0: think what's it's a, such a fascinating thing as a leader. How many people want you to assert power over them? That's inappropriate to their organized sense of self and reclaim right. their own power. Right. And, it's, that's such a, it's such a funny, it's such an interesting, ironic thing where it's like in me accepting my own boundaries and limitations and refusing to be everything for you, not only am I claiming or reclaiming my sense of self, but I'm actually offering a space where you can claim yours. And people are like, no, I don't want right. that." And I get that. You know, people are vulnerable and we're all looking for a sense of stability. But the gift right. of accepting our own limitations is to offer other people the space to embrace their power.
1: Exactly. In that moment. You know what I mean? Completely. No, I mean, this is one of the things that I think underlies Sabbath keeping in Genesis, Mm -hmm. right? Never be more than six days out from laying down all of your implementations that you have control of life. Mm -hmm. Trust the God who does have control of life and release on your own sense that it's all going to depend on you answering emails at 10 p.m. on Sunday night or whatever it might be. That's That's the kind of overreaching obsessiveness about how we can do this. And Instead, setting that boundary, just finitude. Like, forget the even deeper things. Just my life is limited. Time is limited. I'm going to live in a in a finite world, and not let myself try to become ubiquitous. That's the, of course the great lie of the internet that I can become twenty four seven. I cannot become twenty four seven. I am only ever finite. I still live in a biological clock. I'm still, mm-hmm. boundary by the by the strengths and weaknesses of my own body, and. Those are really, really grounding things, uh, let alone the deeper issues of finitude that have to do with all the overreaching. Mm-hmm. I used to joke with our kids when they were little, uh, i and we'd eat breakfast together and I'd say, so what are you all going to do for the day? And our two boys would say what they were going to do. And my wife, Janet, would say what she was going to do. And then our dog was there. And then I turned to our dog and said, what are you going to do? And the dog always said the same thing. He's just going to be a dog today. And I said, <laughs> you know, he's the only one that's going to actually live out his identity mm. today in the most complete sense. We're going to be prone to either uh, surrender ourselves and become subhuman or we're going to try to be more than ourselves, mm. and try to be superhuman. And neither one of those uh, is a pathway to freedom or or fruitfulness, because we're we're squandering on the one hand, and we're we're depriving others on the other hand. So it's it's a very very important trajectory. I think one of the things I've admired from a distance, Kevin, about what you're doing, not only in the podcast, but I just think in the in your wiring and your perspective and the leadership that I'm observing you are uh, operating, there's there's a sensitivity to that kind of journey. And I wish that that was more pervasive in in other pastors' lives, because I think out of that comes a really different journey. And and I think the overreaching of many pastors is is issues of their own power that are not necessarily related to being a pastor, but are related to their identity and life, period. And then they're trying to work it out through being a pastor. Mm. And uh, no wonder we have some of the challenges that we do. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, Thomas Merton talks about the little yellow flowers on the side of the road just because of who they are looking up to the sun. They're already saints in the kingdom of God. And I, and years ago when Imagine first was moving into a public space because we were meeting at our home for about a year and a half, sometimes when we would have the team, whoever's there, kind of huddle up and we would pray and before people would start coming, I would say things like we are one church. In one neighborhood on one island in a chain of islands that's the most isolated landmass on the planet, in one country, et cetera. You keep zooming out.
1: Right. Yeah. you
0: show it's like you zoom out far enough where we are almost on the edge of right. meaninglessness and nothingness. And yet, this right. is the most important work in the world. Right. Here. Right. So I'm like, let's this is not what it is. We're not we're not this is imagine is not going to do everything for the globe i'm not that guy we're not those people but while we come back now that we've seen all that let's return and be like but man there's still this mysterious sacred i think this is the most important thing we could be doing on the planet right now
1: right so you're right.
0: You're, you're you're completely relativizing the unnecessary placing of ourselves at the center but you're returning to how powerful and beautiful and good this really is now we can do it it was just we don't have to be so we don't have to take ourselves so seriously it ain't that big a deal but it right. is a big deal because it's everything you know right
1: well you know john Donne, the 17th century metaphysical poet uh wrote in one of his poems this amazing image where he says that the hands of jesus stretched out uh obviously on the cross but he says the hands that were stretched and pierced on the cross were those that held the spears, so you have this mm. image of it's everything that Jesus alone offers, mm. and then it's the most specific thing. It was it was his literal physical hands in a place and time where that actually granularly all of that cosmic reality becomes present and powerful in the death and resurrection of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, mm. and. And it holds, I think, just exactly what you've said. So we follow Jesus' hands. When you do the full zoom out, Jesus holds all of that. Mm-hmm. And when you zoom in, Jesus is present in the middle of all of that. And he's the mm-hmm. same at whatever distance. Like the focal length is never out of focus. And um, that's a pretty astounding affirmation Absolutely. of the character yeah. of God.
0: That's the that's the, co- the cosmic and the concrete Right. Holding yeah. that together for all of us is at the heart of like one of my like joys and gifts and offerings. Like, I don't know if you know, I don't, do you know like Dan White Jr.? Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dan yeah. moved to Puerto Rico and he. Uh-huh. yeah, I
1: thought I heard that. Right.
0: Yeah. He's starting Caneo. It's a, a retreat center, a healing place for like burned out, like pastors, leaders, et cetera. And Christine, my wife's actually on the board. Uh huh. And yeah, I think the, the holding together of, you know, the cosmic and the concrete for me, like when I have relationships with friends who are leaders and pastors, like say into their forties, I'm 36. I'm like, I go to them for organizational stuff. You know, I'm like not wired that way. So they guide me infrastructure, like Kevin, don't like when I'm young, like, don't take the tithes like this. I'm like, okay, I didn't know that was dangerous <laughs> or whatever. They're they're oh like, God. Kevin, this is how you do taxes. So you don't get arrested. I'm like, thank you so much. I need this. But for me, what the gift I feel like I have to offer and, and I love is like, there is a way to do what we do without letting it kill you without uh-huh allowing it to completely rob you of joy your ability right. to marvel at your children's growth your ability to laugh right. at the sunset with your wife and back like, well that per-, because you can easily because when you lead together it can be like well they're doing this and we have to do this it's like hey yeah all that is happening and that's not mine to do they're okay they i'm not everything right and right that's always right. my heart even with kaneo and what they're doing and what, what dan and them are doing and my wife's a part of it and for me in my life with people i'm like there's so many people who do the other stuff so much better than me. And they're great friends to me. But I'm like, the part that allows you to do this and remain human, yes. and full of joy and yes. not take yes. yourself so seriously, even while you yes. take the work seriously, right. that's always been like, oh, that's kind of what I get more on a on a natural level is doing that right. stuff. Right.
1: right, That's always right. what I
0: care about for leaders because I so believe – in the work, and I know how challenging it is. Obviously, you know too more than I do. And I'm like, I want you to know just as deeply the thing, the joy, the depth, the living water that you're spending your life pouring out for others. Because I'm like, and if if you're not doing that, like we that you, we have to move into the second half of our lives well and not you don't sacrifice right. your health, you know, and your well being. Right. they grow together. Your work and your ability to be in awe and enjoy all this right right Yeah.
1: well what you i love the way you started what you just shared because you said i have this gift to offer and i love it Mm -hmm. now that's a that is (laughs) i just have to say to anyone listening to this podcast that uh that that is an amazing combination i know what i have to offer Mm -hmm. and i love that i get to offer it that's that's the sweet spot right that's Mm -hmm. what we're that's what restraining for all of us to try to figure out what is it that we think perhaps we have to offer in a really healthy, defined way, not an overreaching, underreaching kind of way. And then how do we actually learn to embrace and delight in that as mm-hmm. opposed to somehow spurning it like, well, if I really delight in it, then it couldn't possibly be the will of God. It has to be, mm-hmm. uh, as it were, a, a bruising, brutalizing journey. Well, there is a cost to discipleship, so I don't ever want to mm-hmm. step away from that. Uh, but I. And, and not every day is full of joy and ease, but every day should be full of the richness of what you just described in your case, right? Being clear as much as you can about your own sense of how you've been made, what God has uniquely given to you, and then how you offer that in a, in a way that is uh, free and open and non-manipulative, non-coercive, uh, and, and it creates an opportunity for other people to do likewise. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if, Kevin, you would own this or not, but my sense of you is that you're... You have artistic instincts just as a person in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, and you do that with words. You do that with, with I think the way you even think is is much more um, artistic than necessarily linear. And and the linearity is valuable for other the things, but I'm not a linear thinker either. Right, so right. I have great empathy for people that are not oriented that way. And I think in that there is a sense in a in a culture that's intensely linear and made even more linear because of the pandemic and zoom mm-hmm. calls uh etc there is such a place for uh for beauty and for randomness and for surprise and for unintended uh unintended blessing that was mm-hmm. that's just random right and trusting that i think to me the randomness uh the, the randomness of God's capacity to prove himself faithful is in a way what I'm more committed to than the linearity of a predictable line Absolutely. where God is going to do in sequence the things that, uh, so let me just give you an example. I was in Tulsa uh, this past weekend in uh, in part to be a participant in the events that were surrounding the Tulsa massacre, a centenary, centenary which was celebrated. And through friends, I ended up having an opportunity to be at the the Vernon AME Church. And I was talking to the pastor of that church, who's a really wonderful young pastor, and he was taking a few of us on a little tour. And the little tour eventually led into the basement, which is one of the only surviving structures after the fire that burnt down this Black neighborhood, 300 uh, Black people who were killed, um, the whole area being devastated by fire. Their, Their church foundation survived so he takes us into a room that's part of that survival and in it there's a book which is a a handwritten big log book of all of the person who had given a gift and then their their uh what their donation had been going back you know for decades and decades so into the room comes a couple who introduce themselves and they are one of the heirs of uh of or the one of the yeah the heirs of one of the people who had been the founding deacon of the church wow. at its very, very beginning. So the pastor opens this big book with all these pages, and he suddenly sees that name on one of these pages. And it turns out that the woman who's standing there in the couple is actually, that is her great, great grandmother. Wow. And it, she signs her name, and, she's, and it says 50 Cent's. And suddenly in that way that could never have been predicted. Mm. I mean, there's no way that that could be orchestrated. They are discovering it. I'm just a witness to this holy moment where Love it. I'm, I'm randomly in that space, really. Mm. It's not an orchestrated plan that this is going to occur. And it's not because there aren't great things that can happen through organized plans. But I'm just saying there is something about that that feels like that's, those are some of the most powerful moments that I ex- mm. experienced God it's in the unexpected moments where uh, sometimes some of the most powerful transformation actually occurs. Mm. So I've always remember the visceral feeling of this woman seeing her great, great grandmother, who she had known, yeah, yeah. Uh, gave a 50 cent gift. And her husband was the one who was the, the founding trustee of the church. And the long legacy of that kind of, tangible faithfulness 50 cents on a corner in greenwood
0: it's amazing it, it's just amazing so to me yeah yeah it's uh th- that's a moment where you're bearing witness and you're just like oh, uh, like exactly yeah like th- i love those moments where you it's just like the weight you know that the glory right and in, in Hebrew yes. that were chavod, like it's like a yes. weight you know when you can feel the weight of right. the room of you're just like There's something happening. It's just, it's, it's everything that is trivial is muted. Right. Like we're here and we know like what this is, you know, and what it means.
1: Imagine. So when they were doing some recent, relatively recent excavation, they lifted up some bricks that had never been lifted up in the, in, since the fire and the, the aroma of the smoke came out from the ground. So it had been there, buried for not 100, but for probably like 90, 95 years. Yeah,
0: yeah. And when
1: they excavated it, they could smell in the earth the residue of the timbers that had been burned, right? So the idea that 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 aroma lingers and endures, obviously now it's dissipated because it's been exposed to the air. but, But at that time, it was an amazing thing, right? And that sort of sensibility. So when your church imagine meets and gathers and you're doing the work of being a communion together. you're doing work that is that is meant to stoke the aromas uh, of Jesus' presence in all of you. That's, that means ashes and it means <laughs> and it means timber burning and it means renewal and it means new life. It's all happening, right? It's amazing.
0: So for those of you who just heard that whole story and right now you want to rededicate your life to Christ, you know, just DM me after. (laughs) Oh man, that's amazing. I do. um, Now that the interview I prepared for is, is gone now because of what we just talked about for 40 minutes, which was so good. I really there are some things I would just love for people to hear from you on so I am going to return to some of the questions but man that was even in the middle of this I'm so grateful just for this time that we have together you know let's think about I've asked a few people this question if we think about since March of 2020 right the coronavirus and we think of the moment of the murder of George Floyd, the uprisings, the protests, the public demonstrations and sort of moving towards the end of the Trump era as apocalyptic, right? Not in an end times conspiracy theory kind of a way, but as being true to the word apocalypse, it's this revealing, right? Revealing, right. 2020 seems to be this apocalyptic, this revealing moment of, exposing and drawing to the surface, not something new, but that which has always been present, but seems to have been able to remain a little more hidden from a lot of the eyes. Right. And if if 2020 at all was apocalyptic and revealing in that sense of the term, what, from your perspective as a leader, a person who's been pastoring for 30 years, who's been in this, you know, in the church, right? Like what has been revealed about, the United States or the church in the United States that isn't a, that is a could be a painful but an important revealing over the past year.
1: Yeah, there are so many revealings that have occurred. Honestly, <laughs> it feels like that's part of what makes the year so profound, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's not just one or two or three or four; it's like hundreds of revealings of things that are now exposed what, that were already there, but then more vividly seen sometimes rehearsed because they've been exposed before and then buried again. So using the massacre as an example, it's not that that has never been talked about, but there's a sense that it, its revealing has never latched on. It's like a, a failure of the culture to really understand, name, and own the reality of what this means. And so it has to recur again and again. So the revealing occurs. It reminds me, of course, of something called the narrative of the Bible. Where God's self-revealing happens over and over and over again in greater and greater particularity, and ultimately in the incarnation. So
0: and and, and humanity and the revealing of humanity's constant resistance
1: precisely to, to that, the even,
0: even though it's a path towards its own flourishing.
1: Exactly, exactly. This is the crazy, crazy thing. <laughs> so, so one of the one of the other revealings. There's many, but I'll give you a couple more. One one revealing to me has been uh, the the danger and threat that's always at hand that we are going to become Sisyphus, meaning that mythological person who's pushing a rock up a hill that just endlessly comes back down on him. And you just repeat that sequence over and over and over again. And how much, how many examples there have been, whether it's about government or power or race, or whether it's about gender or whether it's about, the way that people uh, see or don't see their neighbor, or the capacity to really name and, and identify and empathize, or the ability to gain that and then lose it again, gain it and lose it just over and over again. This is where the patience of God is just completely staggering to me, um, and and in my own uh, kind of economic measurement, it it just feels so bizarre to me that his strategy is to design people who don't have the capacity to do the one thing that we're most commanded to, which is to remember. Mm -hmm. And so we keep this cycle going, right? How do you live in that cycle? So coming back to the project I mentioned about Rethinking Church, one of the things that's also revealed in this time is the urgency, the, the urgent crisis is much more profound than kind of numbers sliding and this and that kind of technical problem. That's all true, but underneath it, the crisis is what is happening to the gospel and what's happening to the multi generational transmission of the gospel, which is mm-hmm. clearly collapsed, in my view, under the weight of churchianity mm-hmm. and, and the ecclesiastical complex, which then distances the church from its truest identity. Mm-hmm. And then we wonder why people are not interested. Why would they be interested? Why should they be interested uh, if they're not actually going to engage in the, in the core? And are we even willing? to let people be exposed to that. Um, Just today, I read an article, for example, about somebody who, who a, a military person who over Memorial Day was trying to tell the racial history of the establishment of Memorial Day, which had to do with the way that freed slaves had gathered to memorialize people who had been lost in the Civil War. And as he was speaking, literally, the guy who had been orchestrating the event had the power turned off. Wow. so that people wouldn't hear the paragraphs of his speech wow. uh, that were actually addressing its foundations, right? That's the effort that we go to, to have the whole thing silenced again, right? Rather than allowing it uh, to, to be fully they want, exposed. They don't want to
0: smell the aroma of the smoke under the bridge. Right.
1: Exactly. Don't tell me about that. I don't want to hear it. Uh, that, the way he the, that guy who was the organizer described it, he said that wasn't relevant to what we were doing. It's like, Oh, my gosh. I mean, what a cut flower vision of history, right? Mm. Uh, we're just going to pretend that it's just cut flowers and it's all started the day before yesterday um, instead of actually taking it seriously. So there's things about the human, our human nature that bury, forget, neglect, uh, disregard, don't attend. That, that reality has been hyper exposed, and whether we're talking about the way the pandemic itself has been responded to in various ways, the way that it's tried to be manipulated and all of that, which is another whole story, the way that it's become a point of such national distortion of our political life and of our social capacity for extended and real, con- real uh, conversations about areas of conflict and difference – all of those things are the reality of what ministry is. So uh, so every every time that, uh, that we gather, every time that we're with one another as part of the communion of God's people, we're in a setting where all of that is at risk. Like, are we really prepared to do that? Or are we going to play a cover-up game again and again and again with greater and greater sophistication, but really a failure to stay attached? This is where... You know, I've said we should never be more than five minutes from reading the gospel. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it feels to me like we need the revealing daily again of the shock of the faith. And as an adult convert, I think I'm grateful for the fact that I live—I do live—daily with a sense that the gospel is still absolutely a shock to me. It's a shock every time I think about it. Mm-hmm. And um, there's something that has that has been a gift to me because it's helped me to stay um, grounded in the urgency of what we're doing. Mm. I hope that's in part a response to what you asked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime, you know, we talk, when you talk about remembering, you know, the one thing we need to do of remembering and that story of a great and disturbing symbol of large portions of both the church and the country as a whole, who don't want to remember, like that's, a huge part of the same thing that's true for us on an individual level in terms of healing the naming there is no transformation without the naming without the the facing of what's there the feeling of it the acceptance the coming to terms with it and then a space opens up to forgive and move into a new future and just like an individual who refuses to pay attention to the shadows of their life, they're not gonna experience the freedom they want. And it's tragic when you see over and over that happen on institutional levels or even on a national level of people not wanting to look in the shadows. When, for me, I'm like, that was a question I had earlier in in what I planned where it's what, like, when I'm asking about power and ask about leaders and there's so much resistance to the naming, so much resistance to coming to terms with things what do you think what do leaders what does a country what do people have to lose if they're more honest about the past like whether it's our complicity in systemic racism and oppression of all kinds of marginalized groups both as the white church the church as a whole etc like there's so much resistance to taking ownership or acceptance even in our complicity generationally and the privilege we have as a result like what do people, you've been around leaders for so often. What do leaders have to lose if they're more honest about the past? Why is that a point of resistance for so many?
1: Because they feel like they're going to lose everything. Mm. Uh, that's what's <laughs> at stake. It's not, it's not a small thing. It's that's like right. they feel like they're going to lose everything. Their, their life, their livelihood, their identity, their stature, their womb, their, mm. uh, their cave, uh, etc. Right. It's, it's. It's everything is on the line. And I do think that that has to be fully absorbed. That is is how it's been calibrated. That's a fiction. That's absolutely not true. It's actually the inverse of what the gospel offers us. So it's an example, isn't it, of of this duality of living. On the one hand, we propagate a gospel that actually is the sole source of our hope, which really has nothing to do with my ability to achieve it or earn it. And then we turn around and actually sociologically – live in a world which is all about what I do and all about what the people I can get around me to do likewise. And it's in that, that tension that the, that the church shows its disconnection, its hypocrisy, its, its dual messaging, which are in conflict, not just in tension, but in conflict often. And, and I think that's one of the major problems. This is why the first book that I wrote was called The Dangerous Act of Worship, Living God's Call to Justice. And the danger of worship is that all of, if, you're, if we're worshiping the God of the Bible, that is the God who's revealed to be the God who reorients power and, and strips power and, and gives power and lays down power, um, then we're in a world that's going to completely reorder our lives. And it's therefore dangerous to worship, because if we worship right from the start and say, um, I used to have a little liturgy that I've used in churches I've served where I would say, um, I'm not God. And the congregation would say, you're not God. And I would say, and you're not, and you're not God. And the congregation would say, and we're not God. And my job is not God. And, my, and it was a, you know, a liturgy that kind of went down that road to sort of say, okay, let's get really clear what we're doing here. We're naming the truth. Let's get the puzzle pieces assembled. Reorder them in tiers, because they are in tiers of, of importance. And today, in this context, we're affirming the reality of the Lordship of Christ, which is meant to then reorder any and all other forms of power that, for the sake of life-giving expressions. Now, when I meet with pastors, as I often do, I'm struck again and again and again by fundamental issues of power, which they have not settled in their own lives. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about, well, what about this? What about that? Often the very first line of, of anxiety has to do with fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, but gosh, if we did that, I don't think that, would, that our church would really go for that. I'm not sure that our elders would really like that. Those, that, kind of art, that kind of line of, of discussion is super frequent. And I get that. I've lived in those systems. I understand how that goes. But the question you have to work out with your elders, not around a particular issue, but around the big project of guiding and leading a church, is the question of how do we actually uh, do the kind of work together that allows us together to hold a new form of power so that we are giving ourselves. So I remember early in the the history of being the the president of Fuller, I think it was maybe one of the first couple of meetings, Fuller had this reputation of being the largest this and the largest that. I said to the to the trustees does it matter to you that that's a tag that we're the largest is that a is that an a real identity marker mm, and we had a very earnest conversation about that and in the end they voted actually quite memorably to say no that is that is not the tag that we're They're that, say that's right after not you our,
0: that they immediately voted to get rid of you but you stayed yes. well I've <laughs> I've offered that multiple times but so far there hasn't been such a vote <laughs>
1: so my point is you know how do we how do we bring these things to the surface Mm. not around the hot button issues but around this much deeper question what journey do we think we're actually on Mm. and and it's not defined first by the particulars it's defined first by this this reality of a life of true worship that reorders all power Mm. i think that's yeah, I think that's a big Yeah, I wanna,
0: yeah that's so good. I want to give people a little perspective. I'm gonna ask you one more question. You can give yeah. a pastoral word to the people as a as a send-off and as a maybe as a benediction. But I, I just want to give people some perspective. The things that Dr. Laverton is saying, the ways he's challenging toxic notions of power at institutional levels, the things he's saying about race and about coming to terms with our history the things he's saying about nationalism and its threat to our witness as followers of Jesus like I actually was going to use a speech that you gave that was transcribed at Wheaton in 2018 about power right. race nationalism and economics so that's kind of how I structure right. some of this but I just wanted for people to think about that because for a President of an institution, for a pastor, for a leader like Mark to say like Dr. Laberton to say those things it 's not always the most common thing you 're going to hear from leaders. I was reading the transcribed speech. I was like i don 't know how he still has a job you know after reading some of that because these are things the people i 'm serving we talk about. these are things i 'm talking about. These are things a lot of younger people or just there's there 's things people talk about, but usually not the one who represents higher level institutions or, you know, sort of bureaucracies or structures, people oftentimes are like, they're the issue, let's upend them. And I just want to say that because as, we're, as people are looking for hope and light and a different way of following Jesus into the future, a different relationship with power, Dr. Laberton, as a representation of many others as well, is a person who's showing us there are leaders who are willing to risk losing power for the sake of talking about what real power really is, who are who are willing to speak the truth that might make people uncomfortable, but it allows the gospel to continue to shock us and surprise us at how beautiful and amazing it really is. I just wanted to give that perspective because we are looking for leaders who are willing to put something at the forefront of their minds, like the way of Jesus, that doesn't that might challenge the bottom line or the order that of the way things always have been so you know as we're looking for hope there are so many people ahead that we don't always know that are doing such amazing things as leaders and dr Laberton, for me is one of those people so i just wanted to give that perspective well, of that kind of hope
1: it's, it's extremely generous and i could uh supply all of your listeners with plenty of examples where i failed to do what you've just described but <laughs> uh, but i will say that that is what I'm wanting to do. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, do, I do live in that tension. Um, when I was a pastor in Berkeley, it was a church that had uh, clear glass walls and, uh, and it was just adjacent to everything weird and wonderfully Berkeley. So whatever was happening in Berkeley was lit- visually present as we were meeting mm-hmm. in worship. And I often used to imagine in my mind uh, a, a lineup of Berkeley protesters with one huge banner that basically said, every week, how dare you? <laughs> and 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 it was really a way of framing. So, you know, how dare you assert that there is a God, assert that there is a God who takes ourselves and our world more seriously than we do, who never shirks from going into dark and painful places, who always tells the truth, who's capable of an extraordinary kind of mercy and forgiveness and generosity to all people, that that kind of God could actually be proclaimed, in a city like Berkeley, mm. where the rejection of that reality is palpable in every direction that you might look. But it's also evident that the hunger for such a God is also present mm, right. in the streets of Berkeley. Mm. So, so every week, I took it as an invitation, like, you are exactly right. And if we don't add, actually answer that question, how dare we do and be and say these things, then we're failing at our mission. Mm. It's it's not measured by how satisfied we are with the programming and the buildings and the organization and the yada, yada, yada. It's really, can we answer that question meaningfully, that we can be what Brenda Salter McNeil calls a credible witness, mm. not a perfect witness, not an idealized witness, just a credible witness mm. for why we dare to believe and live the way that we do. Mm. Now, if, we're, if there's nothing there, worthy of that engagement, we should just close our doors and mm-hmm. go away. I mean, we're just mm-hmm. occupying land that's meaningless. Or we take up that challenge and lean into it. And I think I think the crisis that we're in is truly a gift. I mean, fundamentally, wow. rather than a discouragement, I really do receive it as a gift because I think it's an exposure that the church needs to see clearly about itself and then resolutely about the hope that is gratefully uh, because of Jesus Christ, not uh, that the reality that He gives us is the final word, not the crisis itself, mm. and that's what we have to hold on to. That's why we need each other. That's why we need the teaching of Scripture. That's why we need to take risks of faith to actually live it, not just think it. Um, yeah, I, I could go on, but obviously, these are all the things oh. that, to me, are kind of the architecture of hope, and uh, and they give me they give me strength in the midst of this. I'd mm. much rather be in this then be in the setting where there's kind of a placidness uh, that actually masks an underlying crisis. That's just being ignored.
0: So good. That is a great, you know, the the final word of hope that you're talking about. I think that's a great place to end. And I just want to say again, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for oh, for a schedule that's wall to wall. <laughs> as 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 your assistant told me to make yes. room for me out here in Hawaii, I appreciate it so much. <sighs> it's such a gift joy. for us to reconnect, and also for the people yeah. listening in to hear the voices that still speak through me you know thinking about Watkins thinking about you thinking about the ancestors the people who are always speaking through us whether people know it or not you know when when i say something that i heard from Watkins but i don't quote him it's still him speaking through me i'm just taking credit in the moment when i do it so dr laverson thank you so much and uh of course yeah there is for people to see leaders like you is is more important than you realize you know especially for younger people so thank you for sure. all of the courage that's required in all that you do and uh yeah man i'm so i'm so grateful thank you for this time
1: thanks kevin give my love to christine and i want you to throw your kids up in the in the ocean uh as they squeal for me because i'm not there to do it myself and i <laughs> i just uh i love the way you're loving your family so I thank you for that, that gift you. as well yeah Great. as well as your thank Thanks so much Thanks. My honor. Take care.